if you're new or if you're visiting or if you haven't been around through the summer, we have started a series uh, early in July on the Minor Prophets. And uh, it's been a good series. Uh, the Minor Prophets is a section of scripture that in the Bible that is often not talked about and not well known. But I hope that as you've been able to uh, be here a little bit, um, that you've seen how much the heart of God is revealed through the Minor Prophets. You really see a God that cares about his people and a God that reveals what matters to him and what he's looking for from those who are following him. Um, today, we're going to look at the book of Jonah. Uh, I'm really excited to look at the book of Jonah today. Um, some of you have maybe gone to, gone to church for a long time and didn't even know that there was a book titled Jonah. You, you sure, certainly knew about the character Jonah, but didn't know that there was actually a book after him. Granted, if you were a parent, um, you know Jonah best through the riveting cartoon um, VeggieTales. As a parent, I've watched that hundreds of times, and I know the story well because of VeggieTales. And they do an okay job representing him. But um, this, this is a bit of an obscure book, but it was actually a, a favorite for the early Christians, for the early Christian community. They loved this book. And so I want to show you a little bit of, uh, of early Christian art that represents the character of Jonah. I think I got one up there, Morley. Yeah, look at this. So this is, um, this is, this is a, sar a sarcophagus in the third century uh, uh, Roman time, and it tells, the, it depicts the whole story of Jonah on the on the sarcophagus. It was, it's, uh, it's really quite brilliant there. Um, in early Christian visual art, the character of Jonah is actually the second most popular uh, character next to the Good Shepherd. Shows up ten times more than any other character. I got another picture there, late uh, third Roman century, and uh, it's what we would normally think of Jonah, and that is the sailors throwing Jonah overboard. And this is what most of us will think of Jonah. We'll think of that, those two verses in the book of Jonah that talk about um, Jonah being thrown overboard and being swallowed up by a fish. But there's actually so much more going on, and I hope that that's going to come out this morning. We're actually going to see that it's a very small part of the whole story. This book is full of irony. It's full of brilliant literary structures. And like all the prophets, it is a book that really reflects the heart of God. You see the heart of God come through in this small book in an amazing way and what he desires from his people and what matters most to him. And so we're, this morning we're going to walk through the whole book of Jonah. There's four chapters. We don't have time to read through the whole thing, but we're going to kind of give some, uh, some pictures and some highlights uh, of this brilliant book. And then we're going to make some applications to our own lives. So uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, just open up to the book of Jonah and you're able to follow along. I will have some uh, scripture up on the screen, but not all of it. So hope that you brought your Bibles this morning. I'm confident that there is stuff here that can be applied to our lives. Uh, it's been a rich week for me, studying Jonah and reading through it and reflecting on it. And again, just the heart of God being revealed through these minor prophets is an amazing thing. So uh, it's going to feel a little bit more like a Bible study this morning, but again, I, I really believe we'll walk away with something significant this morning. So chapter one, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach. Chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amity. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. Jonah wants nothing to do with Nineveh, so much so that he actually runs away from God's call on his life. Nineveh, uh, in relation to Israel, was in the far northeast, and he runs away to the far west to Tarshish. Tarshish is in modern-day Spain. That was the end of the world as they knew it, and Nineveh was about as far east as they knew at that time. So God tells Jonah, go over here, and Jonah goes over here. He runs as far away as he possibly can from God's call on his life. Um, 
We, so the first thing that we see is that Jonah is a very reluctant prophet. Why? Nineveh is the center of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, Assyria, bitter enemies of Israel, if you know your history, they killed thousands of, of, of their people of, uh, in North Israel. They would come in, they would raid, they would kill, they would pillage. They, uh, they made their kings pay tribute. These were Israel's enemies, and they were bad people. Uh, Assyrian people had a reputation for severe cruelty during their military conquest. I want to read just one little excerpt here from a Assyrian general, just so you get a picture of kind of the mentality of the Assyrian army at the time. So this is what the Assyrian general says. He says, I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off uh, others, their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of the heads. I hung their heads on the tree around the city. Brutal, violent, cruel. I think I have a picture up there. This is actually from Assyria. This is um, from the ancient Assyrian Empire. And it's a picture kind of celebrating torture. And the Assyrian uh, guys are, are pulling on the prisoners and torturing them. And if you look at Assyrian art, you see this over and over again. This was a very brutal, very intense, very cruel empire. And so in many ways, we can understand Jonah's reluctance to go to these people and to preach to them. They don't deserve to hear God's word in their life. Of all people in the world, these people don't deserve to hear it. If anyone is outside of God's grace, if that is at all possible, it is these people. They are the worst of the worst. At that time, they were the worst of the worst. I was trying to think of modern-day examples um, and it's impossible to do that, but the closest thing I could think of is if God called one of us to go into the heart of ISIS. Now, ISIS isn't as bad as it was five or six years ago, but in its heyday, ISIS was torturing and killing and crucifying Christians in the Middle East, in Iraq and Syria. So it would be like God calling one of us to go into the heart there and preach to these people. But that, I don't think that's even a good modern-day analogy because the Assyrians were so bad and were such bitter enemies of northern Israel. So... Jonah runs away. He gets on a ship. I want you to notice the literary genius here that highlights Jonah's threefold downwards descent. In verse 3, he went down to Joppa, which is a city, to catch a ship. In verse 5, he'd gone below the deck, and then he laid down to fall asleep. This is threefold uh, going down uh, a literary structure here. And the narrator is really trying to emphasize how far away Jonah is getting away from God. He's just falling deeper and deeper away from God. God sends a huge storm, so bad that the sailors are afraid. These are veteran sailors, but they are terrified, and the boat is starting to get ripped apart, and they are terrified, and they're throwing everything overboard, and all the sailors start calling out to their own individual gods. Save us. Save us, they say. Where's Jonah? What's he doing? He's fast asleep. He's conked out at the bottom of the boat. The captain goes down, and he wakes him up. He says, what are you doing? How can you sleep through this? You need to call on your God. Maybe he will save us like the rest of us are doing. And here's the first irony that we see in the book of Jonah. Jonah's the, the prophet of God who knows the one true God, and yet he is the only person in the narrative not praying. Everyone else is. The sailors, they cast lots to try to find out who is responsible for this disaster. And the lot, of course, falls on Jonah. So they say, Jonah, who are you? Where are you from? What, from? what kind of person are you? And so in verse 9, Jonah finally confesses. He says, it's my fault. And he says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Again, I want you to notice the beautiful irony here. Jonah fully recognizes that God is the God of all of creation, including the land and the sea, and yet he's running away from this God on the sea. 
It's ironic because Jonah himself knows he can't get away from God and he runs away from him. And he tells the sailors, look guys, you don't have much choice. You need to throw me overboard and then this, this, uh, the sea will calm down. You see that Jonah would rather die than fulfill God's call on his life. After doing everything they can, the sailors, they don't want to throw Jonah overboard. They're afraid something's going to happen to them, but reluctantly, they feel like they have no choice. So they throw him overboard, asking that God would have mercy on them. And immediately, the, the storm ceases and it's calm. And in verse 16, this is their reaction. These are the pagan sailors. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows to him. More irony here. Pagan outsiders are more spiritually in tune than the prophet of God himself. They're more sensitive. And they come to respect the Lord while Jonah continues to remain rebellious throughout the story. And then the part that we all know so well, Jonah gets swallowed up by a big fish and he spends three days and three nights in there. And we get to chapter two. And it's titled The Thanksgiving Song. Jonah's incredibly happy that he's not dead. And he celebrates. And he has this Thanksgiving song to God, uh, grateful that he's not dead. Um, he, he says all the right things here. He recognizes who God is. He recognizes that salvation comes from God alone. But it's pretty self-focused. If you actually read through it, it's really quite self-focused. It's, it's a lot of good lip service. Notice what's not in the prayer. There's no repentance. There's no recognition that he disobeyed God and that he ran away from him. He does, nowhere does he say, I'm sorry for what I did. It's simply just a celebration that his life was spared. Very, very self-focused. We'll read the last three verses here. Jonah 2, 8 and 10. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So here Jonah declares that God is the one who brings salvation, and yet Jonah doesn't care about ushering that salvation to anyone around him. And again, the irony in the story of Jonah is that the only character who doesn't repent is Jonah himself. The sailors end up worshiping God, and later on we'll see that the Ninevites end up worshiping God, but Jonah remains rebellious through the whole story. He is not a model God follower, not a model prophet at all. Uh, one commentary, and I love this, and I put it up on the screen there, I think. Uh, oh, maybe I didn't. He says this, it's not a surprise when Jonah proclaims that salvation is from the Lord, the fish throws up, right? He's just, he's just giving lip service. He knows all the right stuff, but it doesn't actually mean a whole lot to him, and the fish vomits him out. I like that. Chapter 3, Jonah gets a second chance. So this time he dare not disobey God. So reluctantly, he goes to Nineveh. Um, and his message is pretty clear. He's walking through Nineveh, and it's five words. Verse 4 here, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He doesn't mention the Lord. He doesn't explain why calamity is coming. He doesn't talk about repentance or mercy or grace. It's simply a five-word message basically saying, look guys, you're in big trouble. You're about to be destroyed. You got 40 days. And the response of the Ninevites is surprising. They repent. They declare a fast. The king takes off his royal robes. He puts on sackcloth and he sits in dust and he makes a decree to this whole nation to repent and to turn to the Lord, maybe he will have mercy on us, hoping that God will relent and have mercy on them. Verse 10 here, chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. God responded to their genuine repentance. These were hated, feared, immoral, uh, 
They hated Israel. They were torturous people. These people repented and God brought them back. God forgave them. God had mercy on them. No matter how bad or how immoral we think we are or someone else is, God's mercy is bigger. Certainly a message we can take away from this. Chapter 4. The story really kind of comes together here and we really see the heart of God and we really understand why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. When you think about it, this was actually a really incredibly successful evangelistic crusade on Jonah's part. He shows up, he preaches a pretty simple message, five words, and the whole nation comes to him. Right? Uh, They repent and it's incredibly successful. This is the kind of thing that you write home about. He should be happy. He should be like, I'm a great prophet. Amazing how God used me. And that's not at all the case. Uh, That's not at all what we see here. On the contrary, Jonah is angry. Verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than for live. And here is the heart of Jonah. Verse 2 especially, the character of God revealed. I actually emailed Julie in the middle of the week and I said, can you please play that song, The Lord is Gracious and Compassionate? And uh, not coincidentally, because this happens all the time to me and Julie, she'd already picked the song beforehand. Uh, but it's such an amazing song because it's just, it's just straight from Scripture. And it's not just here in Jonah. He's actually quoting uh, a passage in Exodus 34 where God reveals himself as a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. And we also see this in Psalm 103. And so when there's a phrase that's repeated over and over in Scripture again, it's something that we really ought to pay attention to. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and he is rich in love and mercy. Jonah was a prophet. And the worst thing for a prophet in that day and age was to be a false prophet. If you said something and it didn't happen, you were deemed a false prophet and you pretty much lost your respect and your vocation. And because of this, Jonah became a false prophet. He declared disaster on Nineveh and what happened? Nothing. So he became a false prophet and he knew all about God's character. This is perhaps the worst thing that could have happened to him was that it didn't come true. We see in Jonah that he's more concerned about his reputation than the lives of those who needed God most. And there's probably a whole sermon wrapped up in that point. How often do I care about my own reputation? Uh, more than letting people know about the love of God. Letting people know who I follow and what I'm about and who God is. More concerned about our reputation. I think that's Jonah. And so Jonah, he goes and he sits beside the beach, beside Nineveh, and he's sitting there and he's waiting to watch to see what God will happen, thinking to himself, maybe, maybe God will change his mind. Maybe God will still destroy them yet. And then something very strange happens here at the end of Jonah. God provides a leafy plant to grow over Jonah and gives him shade. It's really hot and windy and God provides this big leafy plant and he's shaded. And for the first time in Jonah, in verse 6, it says Jonah was very happy. And it's the only place in all of Jonah where he's happy because usually he's the other way around. Again, more uh, more irony here. Uh, The next day, a very strange thing happens. A worm chews up the plant and it withers away. And Jonah gets really, really angry. In verse 8, he says, it would be better for me to die than to live. Once again, Jonah wants to die. We see this a few times throughout Jonah. He's a bit of a suicidal guy. 
uh, God uses this plant as an object lesson for Jonah. That's what's going on here. It's not just a random strange event. It's an object lesson. Jonah's happy to get relief from the heat, but he's angry when it's gone. And yet he, he doesn't care at all about the relief of the Ninevites. And he hopes that their relief will be taken away. Just like the worm that destroyed the plant, he wants God to take back the salvation that they've experienced. And then here in the end of Jonah, we see this conversation between Jonah and God. And I'm going to read the last three verses of Jonah here. Chapter 4, verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. There he goes again. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And that's the end. That's the end of the book. That's, that's where it ends. It leaves the reader hanging with this, with this question. Should I not care? And nowhere in the book do we see Jonah changing his mind or having a change of heart or repenting. He just kind of stays stuck in his, stubborn, in his stubbornness. I, I think this is an, an amazing book. Jonah's heart never changes, and we are left with that question. Why, why shouldn't God care about his creation? People and animals in all of creation, should I not care? God leaves us hanging. So I want to offer three reflections today for us as, as a takeaway. First one here, uh, your heart, what's in your heart matters to God more than what's in your head. And we see this in Jonah. In Jonah, he knew all the right stuff, right? He understood that salvation was from the Lord. He understood that God was the creation of land and sea. He understood that God was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in mercy and capable of saving people. He knew all this stuff in his head, but it never actually impacted his heart. And God cares more about the heart, I'm reminded of one of my favorite uh, devotional writers, 15th century Thomas Akempis. Um, I've quoted him before, and I want to I quote this because it sticks in my head when I think about this. So what he says, What good does it to speak learned of the Trinity if lacking humility you displease the Trinity? Indeed, it is not learning that makes a man holy or just, but a virtuous life making him pleasing to God. I would rather feel contrition than to know how to define it. What? Would it profit us to know the whole Bible by heart and the principles of philosophers if we live without the grace and love of God? Vanity of all vanities, all is vanity except to have God and to serve him alone. And Thomas Akempis lived in a day and age where it was all academic, it was all scholarly, and he called people back to a heart religion. And in many ways, um, the evangelicals and, and uh, many of the Protestants took their cue from Thomas Akempis, who was a Catholic writer, but basically was saying, it's about your heart, not about what's up here, but what's in here that really matters. Back in my construction days, I had a work buddy, and he was very proud to be a Christian. Um, he talked about it a lot. His dad was a pastor, and, and we were friends, and he would, he would often say, yeah, me and, Chris are, me and Chris are Christians. We follow Jesus. We grew up in the church. But uh, very early, I just, there was something fishy about him because he just didn't live it at all. His mouth, he was constantly swearing. He had incredibly bad habits. He was in the bars most night. Um, one weekend, we went to Banff together. He was married. He had a kid, and he was in the bars picking up girls. And I remember thinking to myself, what kind of Christian is this? You know? And, and yet, he wanted to have conversations about doctrine and about theology, and he understood it all, but it was just here. And it never went into his heart. 
never went into his heart. Later I found out, you know, years, years gone by that he was divorced, he was addicted to drugs, he was unemployed, he'd made a bit of a mess of his life. Because what here had never moved down into here. Do you think God cares so much about us knowing all the right things? What's in our head has to sink into our hearts, otherwise we're missing the whole point. Right? And we see this in Jonah. He understood it, he had good theology, he had good doctrine, he got it all. But it didn't actually translate into his life, into his actions, into his words, into how he lived it out. And so, what's in here needs to move down into here and, and be lived out. Number two, God is on mission and we're called to join him. You can't, you can't read the book of Jonah without seeing the missional heart of God. And I know I talk about this a lot, but it's in scripture a lot. God, God is a missional God and he calls us to be a part of it. Jonah loved to take comfort in his own salvation that's the whole uh, Jonah chapter 2. You know, he, he's quite happy that he's saved, quite happy that, uh, that his life is taken care of, but that's where it ended. It began and ended with him. And the biblical reality is that those of us who have experienced salvation have also been called to a great responsibility to represent God in our world, every one of us. I love what one commentator said there here. He says, Jonah is the father of all of those Christians who desire the benefits and blessings of election, but refuse its responsibility. Jonah is the father of all those Christians who desire the benefits and blessing of election, but refuse its responsibility. And I think this leads us to one of the overall themes and perhaps the best way to view the book of Jonah as a whole. Jonah is a picture of Israel. They were called to be a blessing. The whole point of calling one nation uh, to be God's people was to draw all the other nations to himself, to, to represent God to the world around them. That's why Abraham's call, the beginning of Israel, was I'm going to bless you in order to be a blessing to all of the nations. This isn't insular. This isn't something you just keep to yourself. You are, you are to bless others. That's the point of Israel. God wanted to be known. He wanted to save and redeem the world. And so he chose one nation to represent him to all the others around him. But just like Jonah, Israel falls short. Jonah was self-centered, self-focused, happy in his own little God bubble. And as we've seen throughout the minor prophets, this is really their big issue, is they become very insular. Israel lost their identity as a nation to point all the other nations to himself. In the Old Testament, Israel is called to be a light to the nations. In the New Testament, we live under the New Testament in the New Covenant. Jesus says to his disciples and to anyone who follows him, he says, you are the light of the world. You are salt of the earth. You are a city on a hill. You are a lamp to be put up on a stand and not to be covered. This is who you are as believers in me. Later on, as you read throughout Paul's letters, you can't get away from the fact that he calls each and every one of us to be ambassadors, to be representatives of Jesus in our cities, in our towns, in our world. You get to 1 Peter, and Peter talks about Christians living such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and they will glorify God in heaven. That somehow how we are to live amongst our non-believing neighbors is to point them to Jesus. This is our call. This is our responsibility. It's not just some insular uh, head thing that we are about. God wants us to live this out. We've been called to point others to the reality of God to make disciples of all nations. That is the Great Commission. As a parent, I try to instill this in my kids. I don't want, I don't want them to just think that Christianity is uh, saying a prayer, getting saved, and going to heaven when they die. As important as those things are, that is really not the whole picture. I want my kids to grow up with an understanding that, that 
if they choose to follow Christ with their life, that they are called to something and they, they get to participate in this fantastic adventure of joining God on, on representing him in the world, of saving and redeeming the world around us. I want them to have a whole picture of what it means to be a Christian and to pass that down to them for them to see it in my own life. That it's not just about me and making sure I'm going to get to heaven when I die. There's so much more to it. As I studied Christian history, I came across a movement that inspires and that it really inspired me and challenged me. And every time I read about them, I'm, I'm just um, I'm amazed by them. I want to tell you about it. Early 1700s, um, it's a movement in Central Europe that happened called the Moravians. And the Moravian movement really was a catalyst for the later evangelical movement. Uh, much, much of the evangelicals, of the early evangelical movement in North America and in Europe, uh, actually drew from the things that the Moravians were doing 100 years earlier in the 1700s. The Moravians were a group of people who were passionately believed in the Lord. Again, they grew up, they were growing up in a day and age where Christianity was very scholarly, very academic. It didn't actually translate into a lot of living it out. And they rebelled against that. And they were passionate about Jesus, passionate about knowing him, deeply rooted in prayer and the authority of scripture. And they really believed in, in a missional God, in a missional faith. They believed that the Bible was a missionary Bible that revealed a missionary God that called a missionary church. So this very small movement called the Moravians, they started the European, in many ways they started the Protestant European missionary endeavor. August 21st, 1732, two blue-collar workers, a potter and a carpenter from the Moravian community set sail for St. Thomas in the West, that's in the Caribbean, and they were called on mission. And their mission was to reach the slaves in St. Thomas because the African slave trade was just booming back then, and they wanted to go and evangelize these slaves. And the only way they could get granted passage on the boat was to sell themselves into slavery for life. And so that's what they did. And as they were sailing away on the boat, they have recorded what these two men's last words were. And that was the last time anybody saw of them. He said, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And that is the battle cry of the Moravians. I'm going to say it again. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his sufferings. In those first few years, 22 of the first 29 missionaries, Moravian missionaries, died. It was very harsh conditions, but that didn't deter the community. Four months later, the Moravians sent missionaries to the Eskimo people in Greenland. 28 years later, after that first missionary journey, they sent 226 missionaries who went out to previously unreached people groups around the world, reaching over 6,000 people. This is in the 1700s. And this really was the beginning of the Protestant missionary endeavor. And the Pietists and the Puritans and the Evangelicals of North America and, and uh, Britain and Europe all took their cues from the Moravians and they sent their missionaries out. And that's when the great missionary endeavor started. But it really started with this grassroots movement, the Moravians, because they understood what they were called to do. You may have never heard of the Moravians. We don't see many Moravian churches today. Their focus wasn't on establishing a denomination. Their focus was on preaching Christ and helping people come to a saving faith and a saving understanding of who God is. And in so many ways, we as evangelical churches around the world are byproducts of this grassroots movements of the Moravians. And so I would say to us, this is our heritage and this is our call. Most of us are not called to go overseas. I don't think, I wouldn't stand here and say that every one of us needs to go overseas. Some of us are. Most of us are called to live missionally right here at home, in our homes, in our schools, in our communities, in our workplaces, 
But we have all been called to be missionaries, whether you're overseas or whether you are right here. It's a call for each and every one of us because we, like the Moravians, have a missionary Bible, a missionary God, and we are called to be a missionary people in a missionary church. We see this in Jonah. God's heart for the nations, God's heart for the lost, God's call on his people to do something with what he's blessed them with. Point number three, and this is going to lead us into communion, Jonah points us to Christ. Unlike Jonah, Jesus was a faithful prophet. He was an obedient son. But just like Jonah, he was away for three days and for three nights, and he emerged victorious from death. Jonah's miraculous rescue from certain death anticipated the greater miracle yet to come, and that is the resurrection from death itself that Jesus went through. The New Testament talks about this. Jesus actually refers to Jesus, or sorry, Jesus refers to Jonah in the New Testament, in Matthew and in Luke, and I want to read the Matthew passage here. The Pharisees are criticizing Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want a sign from you. And he answered, this is Jesus' words, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now someone greater than Jonah is here. Jesus points to Jonah as a foreshadowing of what he is about to do. Three days and three nights and he will be victorious over death. Jesus tells his critics, you should pay attention to me the way the Ninevites paid attention to Jonah. 